Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, all you fruit ninjas and candy crushers. Congratulations, you've landed in just the right place again because you're just in time for Tech Talk with Matt Dickerson. And here he is, the maniac on an e-scooter, back from terrorising the footpaths of Darwin. It's Matthew Dickerson. Some fun times up north, Matt. I didn't know that you saw that CCTV footage of what I was getting up to up there, James. <laughs> All the monoing and stuff that you were doing there. <laughs> I actually got beeped a couple of times because a few times I, they're meant to be ridden on the footpaths, and a few times I actually went, you know, it's pretty crowded on the footpath, I'm just going to duck out in the road and go along the road. They're oh. limited to 15 k's an hour, but you know, there's a fair bit of space on the road, just like if you're on a push bike along the road, and I ducked down to the road and cars started beeping at me, so they're obviously very used to them being on the footpaths, but they are good fun, and I haven't ridden one for a little while, because I used to ride them a lot when we go overseas, but of course we haven't been overseas for a while, so I haven't been on an e-scooter for a little while, but I do love them, and the technology is getting better all the time with their geofencing and where you can park and sending the photo and all sorts of fun stuff. But I came back, and I've actually just been out at a wedding today, and I just wanted to talk about the technology in stenciling devices that are available now. And this particular wedding, the bride and groom, mainly the bride, had done an absolutely fantastic job with creating lots of stuff for the wedding. So the name placards that sit on your table in front of you to know where you sit and various things that are around there in terms of instructions and little jokes even. There was a mobile phone joke there about, you know, what happens when two cell phones get married, they have a great reception and that sort of stuff. So all, all, all <laughs> nice. sorts of all sorts of great stuff like that. And I talked to the bride and groom about it. I said, gee, you've done a really good job with all these things. And the, the bride was very, uh, you know, chuffed by my comment because she said, I've used my little cricket machine and I'm not sure if that's the way to pronounce it. C-R-I-C-U-T is the name of the machine. That's one of the stenciling devices out there. And she loves her little machine to create lots of different things, iron-on transfers or stencils to create the little name placards. Anyone that's got a little bit of a creative twist now can really release that creative twist with some of the things you can make. And so I thought about all the things that were at this wedding. And if you had had them made commercially, say, 10 years ago, you would have been up for thousands of dollars because they were all personalised. And particularly if you said, oh, yeah, it's from a wedding. Exactly. Right. Okay, we've got it. the special wedding price. That's, that's yeah. right. The wedding tax you have to pay on top. Because <laughs> who's going to question the amount you're going to pay for your wedding? Don't you love me, darling? Of course I'll pay that much. Yeah, I know. So, oh, there's the trap. That's right. So now with all the ability you've got with those sort of stenciling devices, you can actually create a whole range of things that would be incredibly expensive that you can do them cheap. And the main advantage, I think, with those type of devices is you can do the one-off. That's where you get very expensive things in the past. But if you just want to do a a one-off mug for your darling wife on an anniversary or whatever it might be, you can do all those sorts of things. So I was pretty impressed with all the things that were created for the wedding just out of a little home stencil-making machine that the the bride sat there and just spent hours and hours. Although she did admit that when she started off doing the name tag, she thought this would be a really good idea. And about halfway through, she thought, oh, how many more name tags have I got to go here? Maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. <laughs> oh, well, look, hey, uh, for the craft business, it's a big one. Uh, and there's lots of money to be made. So if you've got um, some sort of gadget like that that can uh, you know, run some awesome little trinkets together and really display your craftiness, um, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, it is. And it's, again, for those people that are a bit creative, 
there's uh, lots of different things you can do and things you didn't even think you know that you needed you can actually create out of it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, very, very good. Now, you cannot keep a good thing down and even a dose of COVID isn't enough to hold us back this week, as you might detect. I've been afflicted with the Barry White variant. And so we're recording in isolation this week. Bear with us, folks, as we battle through. But if you hear any sort of echoes in the background or little glitches and stuff, it's because we're dealing with it. Computer tennis simulation games have gotten better and better over the last 30 years. You just hold the controller in your racket hand these days and swish at the ball on the screen, just like Rafa. And if you're lucky, you might even be able to win a point against Djokovic without any fear of catching COVID. Simulators are so real these days. With your surround sound system, you can even get a full Wimbledon stadium on their feet right behind you. But there's still something missing. It's just not tennis without the feel of the ball on your racket, or should I say your controller. Matthew? Well, I'm actually still trying to just come to grips with the Barry White voice at the moment, James. I want to, I want to focus on what you're talking about here I've, with I've just tennis. Made computer tennis sound a little bit sexy, haven't I? Well, that's right. You might have a few more female <laughs> listeners this week, James. <laughs> but aren't we incredible at getting us away from the outside world and trying really hard to make the inside world feel and look and touch just like the outside world. It almost, almost feels like... As, as, yeah, almost like the outside. Almost like the real thing. That's yeah. right. You almost feel like maybe you should go in the outside world sometimes, but no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so let's work out how we can make the inside world as close as... And this is exactly what has happened in this particular scenario. The National Taiwan University in Taipei has come up with some work where they're actually putting some compressed air in conjunction with your controller so when you actually swing the racket in a game of tennis in a in a video game of tennis then you actually just get a little bit of compressed air that pushes out against your racket swing so no it way. feels like you've hit the ball <laughs> now we talked about compressed air last week um, uh, in, in the simulating uh, you know sensations but it was on your face wasn't it uh, that yeah, was ultrasonic sound in, in that one yeah, yeah. that's right yeah sorry ultrasonic sound sorry yeah. I, sorry I, I defer back to you but that's this one's just <laughs> like an air compressor like a or sorry a compressed air like in a paintball gun so you've got a little compressed air so it, you plug that in, so it's got some compressed air there. It would be good for X number of hits of a tennis ball, and then away you go and you start playing tennis. So you actually are seeing, feeling it's just like being there in the real world, and you're actually playing tennis. Now, they've applied it to other things as well. So, for example, you might be able to do it in a game of ping pong. Obviously, a ping pong ball or a table tennis ball is much lighter, so you wouldn't have quite as much air that would push out against the hit of that ball. But again, it would just give you something that feels a bit like it. So you can just imagine strapping in a whole VR headset, strapping something to your hand. Don't know where you put the compressed air, maybe on your body somewhere, run the airline up to your hand with your controller and then playing a game (laughs) of table tennis or tennis or really anything where you've got a ball that you're hitting, you can just imagine swinging a baseball bat, swinging a cricket bat, anything that you've got that's got some force of that ball against you. And as the weight of the ball changes, I'd imagine they could change the amount of air that pushes back against your racket or your bat so that you actually feel it differently. So that just yeah, sounds... a little bit of resistance there on the connection. Oh, that's amazing. And if you combine that, if you just had it by itself, I don't think it would be that effective. But if you combine that with other perceptions around you, i.e. the sound, Mm. the vision, combine all that together, it would feel like you were really playing the game. Now, I have no idea 
whether it could translate. So in other words, you're in lockdown for two weeks. Oh, no, I can't get on the tennis court. Well, if I go and use this with everything being so real, it'll be just like I'm practicing in the real world. And so when I go back out in the real world after a couple of weeks, everything's okay again. I don't imagine Mm. it's that good. But I can just see people at home with these little compressed air things playing tennis vigorously in their lounge room and really feeling like they're playing the game. Wow, I just think that's that's so amazing. And uh, hey, look, uh, another excuse for people to not go outside and <laughs> have right. a game of tennis. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've probably come up with more things like this during lockdown. There have obviously been more people sitting yeah. at home, not being able to get in the outside world. And how can we keep creating that outside world in the inside world? But no, I think sometimes it's just because we like to stay inside. On a similar line, though, we're talking about some more toys here. The term toy is such an arbitrary thing these days. People of my grandfather's generation, perhaps even my father's generation, might scoff and uh, just uh, told me to just grow up. But but toys for grown-ups are a thing now, particularly when they can do 0 to 100 in 2.3 seconds, folks. And this remote-controlled electric car mat is one toy that will make a grown man squeal with the light, I understand. Does it have the recommended age of 21 and up on the box or something? I think it should be more like 45 and up midlife crisis only for this particular (laughs) toy. 25-year-olds doing this, they won't appreciate what this toy is all about. (laughs) That's right. You've got to be in your your mid-40s at least. (laughs) That's right. This can be your midlife crisis when you can't afford a midlife crisis. Although, having said that, this particular remote control supercar costs less than two grand but if i said to you james i can get you a supercar zero to 102.3 for less than two grand you'd say that sounds fantastic the minor problem is that it's only one seventh the size of a normal supercar any sort of car but that's a minor problem to deal with because just imagine the fun you would have but the problem is it'd get out of sight pretty quickly when it does zero to 102.3 it's yeah, not that not that long before you go what's that little dot in the distance there now you can does imagine it come with a tracker <laughs> it needs that doesn't it you can imagine these are used for racing and actually even on the website when they advertise and they say this is not a toy well it kind of is because it's a remote controlled car yeah. but it kind on, of guys. tries to that's right it tries to tell people this is not a toy this is for use by experts only now i'm not sure how you qualify as a remote control car expert. I mean, I've driven a few remote control cars. I reckon I'm pretty good at them. So does that make me an expert or do I have to get a driver's license, a remote control driver's license? I'm not sure. But I'm pretty sure that the firm, even though they say on their front page of their web screen, this is not a toy for experts only, I'm pretty sure if you pony it up with a couple of grand, they'd probably sell you one of these in a way you buy is it just a disclaimer? Is it just a disclaimer. So when you take it out of the box and you put the, I guess it takes some petrol, or is it? Ele- it's electric, is it? Electric, yeah, definitely electric. Oh, sorry, sorry, you're not putting any petrol in. Uh, my apologies. Um, yeah, so and you charge it up, and and then on the first car you drive it straight into the wall at 100 kilometres an hour. The thing explodes. They go, well, we told you it's not a toy. Were, were you an expert? Or no, you weren't. There you go. That's yeah, were why. you an expert? No, you weren't an expert. Yeah. And it even talks about the fact that you need to be 16 years or older to be able to drive this. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, yes, yes, 16 years or older. So yeah, if, right. you, if you're... We've had that conversation already. You, to be appreciative of it, that's you right. need to be 45. Yeah, that's okay. exactly... I, I should say that on there, but that might limit their sales somewhat. But there is some pretty good technology on there. Obviously, as you can imagine, the amount of power it needs, even though it's small, but the amount of power it needs to get to that speed in that time, it's actually got traction control on there, so it's pretty impressive. Oh, wow. The steering control, because again... Remote control cars get a bit sort of, uh, you know, 
squiggly like, on on the track when you're trying to drive yeah, it like they can a be really car. Touchy. So, they are. so if you're doing a hundred and then you try to turn a corner, you, you're going to roll it. It's just going to flip. Well, you can do that, or even going in a straight line. Sometimes I've found remote control cars that are fast in a straight mm. line is actually hard because you are right; they are so sensitive. You only need to just touch that control a little bit, and next thing you know, it's veering off at some random angle. So it's actually got a little bit of control in terms of AI built in to try and keep it tracking straight. As I said, it's got the traction control, so it doesn't just spin the wheels, sit there in the one spot and spin the wheels. It sounds like a lot of fun. I haven't driven one, I must admit. It does sound like a lot of fun, but I just don't know where I drive it. Down my driveway, big deal. I can drive it for three quarters of a second, and that's it. The end of end of my fun's over. So I think it is really for people that are serious about racing these out on big racetracks. I think they race them on tracks that are similar size to go-kart tracks, for example, because, again, mm. they're going pretty fast. Or if you have your own asphalted airstrip, Oh, that's the other um, thing too. Which so yeah. many of us do. Yeah, yeah. Um, that could be another opportunity too. That's right. So for people that race them or for people with their own airstrip, this is the toy for you. <laughs> Smart wearables, folks. You can wear them on your head, on your wrist, on your chest, in your ears, on your hips. But have you got yourself a pair of smart socks? Well, hopefully not yet, I hope. Uh, a pair of these cosy puppies are designed to help sufferers from dementia. Um, which has major implications for one of the biggest health issues of the current age. Matt, there's no miracle cure here, but there is an important management tool for carers of dementia sufferers in these smart socks. Yeah, and I think that's right. I think it is about that management, and you're quite right. It is a health problem we'll see more and more of. We're learning how to keep the human body going longer, and we're living much older than we did, say, a century ago, but the brain, we don't understand the brain yet, and this is obviously one of those issues. But as we've said before, Necessity is the mother of invention. And this particular invention was from a university student, PhD student, and he was going to see his great-grandmother who was suffering from dementia. And he just found a few things that didn't feel right to him and he just he, he, he was concerned about her. And he started thinking about how he might be able to solve some of the problems that she was having. And so he came up with this idea of smart socks. So the socks themselves will track the heart rate of the person wearing them, sweat levels, motion, and I've got a tracking device in them as well, so that if someone's wearing them and their heart rate goes up or the sweat levels go up and they're moving around in a very short, sharp manner, that signals to someone, one of the carers presumably, that this person may be agitated. So they can go mm. in there and, and see what's happening. If they do start to move away and, and get too far away, if they've managed to escape wherever they might be uh, staying at, for example, then that can track them as well so they can actually find them from that perspective. So it really is a way to try and manage the person, try and keep them in a calmer state, but also if the worst comes the worst, actually track them wherever they've gotten to. The good part about it is some of the carers in these situations have tried various things like watches, like things that you might put on the person, but that's not necessarily natural to someone and someone that might mm. be suffering from dementia, saying to them, make sure you put that little device on your bedstand on each morning, they probably don't always remember to do that. But socks, because they've probably put socks on their entire life, then they're probably okay with putting socks on. That's something that's still part of their day-to-day routine. Get up, put my clothes on, put my socks on, and away I go for the day. And then they've got this being tracked. So that's the idea of it. That was why this particular student thought that socks would be the obvious way to go because dementia sufferers are still wearing socks. That's still natural to them. So why not use that technology in there? Plus you're getting easy access to things like sweat levels and heart rate. So you can get that sort of information quite easily. And the motion from their legs, obviously a watch might not give you true indication. It might tell you that someone's moving around, but 
the, the socks give you that indication that it might be a very agitated motion. So, yeah, I thought it was quite good. They're actually doing them at the moment in the UK, so you can actually get these socks in the UK at the moment. I'm sure they'll be developed further, and they'll be available worldwide. Uh, presumably someone will back these socks, and they'll take off around the world. That's such an amazing initiative, like uh, an innovation, and, and such... Yeah, you know, we've talked about in the past that um, some of these innovations, they just seem so obvious once someone says, hey, look, this is now available. But, um, yeah, that, well, I think that's so clever. Yeah. Take my hat off to it. Yep, yeah. exactly right. And you're right, those inventions that you see, oh, why didn't I think of that? That's so obvious. Yeah, They're the best right. inventions, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it happened to vinyl. It happened to the 8-track tape, it happened to cassettes, and it happened to the CD. All good things come to an end, and in 2022, Apple have pulled the pin on the iPod. Matt, what will you give me for my slightly used docking station? I've got it right here by my side. Well, it's hold still on to good, it. Nick. Hold on to it, James. Hold on to it. <laughs> give it a few years. Item? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You never know because they've, they've – dis- so that's the official word from Apple. They've discontinued – the iPod, you can still buy one while stocks last, and I, I do that in inverted commas, so who knows whether it's a marketing ploy by Apple and they just happen to have 100 million sitting in a warehouse somewhere, so they're just trying to get rid of them, but it's finally gotten to the point where they've said, you know what, who wants an iPod anymore? There are other devices, other ways to get exactly what you got out of your old iPod, so we probably don't need the iPod. I mean, the iPod's got a huge place in history, and most people think that it invented the MP3 or the iPod was the thing that drove the MP3 whole situation forward. But MP3s have been around before the iPod, of course. And it was mm. really just the iPod, the convenience of the iPod, and then the way you could buy songs with the Apple Music Store. That's what changed the whole music world. But the iPod was an important part of that, but not on its own. It needed the way to get the music on there. And MP3 players that existed before the iPod it was always a bit clumsy and a bit hard to get songs on there and to get songs on there legally was a big issue as well. But yeah, yeah the iPod yeah. changed that. So that what we do now and how we listen to music now is definitely due to iTunes and the iPod together. But when you go through some of the iPods, I mean, the very first generation, 23rd of October, 2001, for people that care about the exact date of things. And that was the old first generation classic model, which was came to be known as a classic. Yeah. Bringing back some memories here. <laughs> well, that had five gigs, five gigs of memory on that. Yeah. And just, again, you go through so many different models came out. And, and I remember the, the classic. And all of a sudden, like you could have like heaps of CDs all on the one, div- like this little thing that fits in your pocket. Yeah. That's crazy. It was crazy. Anyway. And they didn't skip when you hit a bump or something like that or it went, no. went for a run. So <laughs> so they had the classic. They had the mini. Mini came out in about 2004. The nano was a really cool little one as well. And and I actually like that. Uh, it's just so small. Again, nano 2005. Uh, they had the various generations, second, third, fourth, etc. generations. And even though they call them different generations, they all looked a bit different. But probably my absolute favorite was the shuffle. The shuffle that came out in 2006 mm. was the one that looked like about smaller than a box of matches, half the thickness of a box of matches, and just a little clip on it. And that was it. So you had a little clip, yeah. a little dial on the front, and you clipped it on and off you went for a bike ride or a run or whatever it might have been. So absolutely fantastic. But for mine, the worry was it didn't even have a screen on it. No, it was, no, it had like, nothing. You know, it, 
what do you what do you do? You know, it's got no screen. I don't know what I'm doing if it's got no screen. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You didn't want to have that as your only music device, but you wanted to have that and something else if you really wanted to use it for a run or something out there very yeah, physical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but different versions of all those. The touch screens came out then, and that was obviously in response. The first touch one came out in 2007, so getting around that same time frame as the original iPhone. But from Apple's perspective, they're at the point now where they go, well, We've got all these other devices that have got music on them now. Why would we want to keep bothering producing this for your music when you're going to just use your phone or you're going to use your iPad or you're going to use your the various home devices that you've got? So there's so many ways to play music. It's just not really that sensible for an individual single device that only has the job of playing music, which is completely opposite mm. of what they said back in 2001 when they first released the iPod, but that's a separate story. I think the only thing, the only segment of the market that we completely disappointed by this will be the kids who, whose parents deem them not old enough to get an iPhone yet and they want to be able to listen to their music. That's where I used to see there was still a market for the iPod in the past. Yeah. But now, and, and around year six, say, uh, 12 years of age mm-hmm. maybe, is a sort of age that I see a lot of kids start to get phones, maybe maybe 13 years of age, somewhere, somewhere around there. But you want to listen to music a long time before that. So I just, I don't know what they'll do, whether they'll just have to buy iPhones and not put a SIM card inside them because mum and dad don't really want them out on the big wide world. But they like the yeah. idea of the iPod as well, where you couldn't go and get on all your social media and all those sorts of things. So, yeah, I'm not sure if someone else might maybe, come along and fill a void. it's going to expose that there'll be a big, there'll be a niche there that needs to be filled. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and they'll have to refill it with the next generation of iPod. Or someone else will come <laughs> along and uh, and fill that hole. If, if they don't, if Apple doesn't fill the hole, someone That's else will right. fill the hole for them. Here's a dilemma, folks. I've got two really big problems besides, obviously, the lingering remnants of Omicron, of course. For one, I've got this loose $130,000 in my pocket and it's burning a hole. I just, it feels so heavy and I've got to get rid of it. And secondly, I'm tired of my TV being such a permanent feature on my lounge room wall. If only I could watch TV when I want to and then somehow hide the television. Matt, I'm hoping you might have some solutions for both my problems, perhaps even kill two birds here with one clever stone. Do I have a solution for you, James? If only there was a roll-up TV that you could put in your lounge room today. What? But how much does it cost? <laughs> well, lucky you've got that 130 grand in your back pocket burning a hole because that's how much it's going to cost. Actually, you'd get about a dollar change from 130k. Oh, that's oh, great. <laughs> so, so don't blow it all at once. Some licorice all sorts. Good. That's right. So yeah, right. LG have said the rollable OLED TV is a work of art for luxury living. 130 grand, that is that is luxury living. If, I don't know which way you want to slice it, is, yeah, it and dice yeah. it, but 130 grand for a TV is luxury living. So it does roll up. Now, that's unbelievable. And this is what LG is really trying to do is they're showing off the technology there. I don't think they're expecting to sell a few thousand of these into the Australian marketplace. They're ultra thin. So these aren't going to hit the floor of Harvey Norman or anything like that? Uh, there may be. <laughs> maybe in the capital yeah, you cities might. you might see yeah, one. Okay. 
on there yeah, for right, demo okay. purposes only, but I don't think the Harvey Norman sales staff will be judged on their ability or otherwise to sell these particular devices. To shift these ones, yeah. yeah. But it is really just showing off that ultra-thin, flexible OLED screen. The box it sits in is actually quite compact, and it rolls up, so it actually has to do some pretty clever things there to keep the screen up and straight as it comes out. So it's not like it's dropping down, relying on gravity to come down. It's got to roll up and keep it stiff on the two sides. But that's where mm. I get excited by it, not by the 130 grand, that doesn't excite me at all, but I get excited about the fact that you've got something so small and so flexible that can roll out to be a high quality TV screen. Because then you start thinking about how else can they use this same technology. Now sure, this has got a box on the end of it, so there's a bit of technology built into that, but do we get to the stage where we get roll up tablets, roll up newspapers, can we get to the stage where OLED is that good that we can roll up things? Forget about foldable phones, what about a roll up Mm. phone, for example? So I'm probably pushing the envelope a bit too far there because, again, this cheats because it's got a box at the bottom that's got all the normal technology that makes it a bit hard to roll up. I'm sure there's some printed circuit boards, for example, in the bottom part of that TV, and I just don't know how you'd go about rolling up a printed circuit board. But the screen itself, the fact you can roll that, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see just who picks these things up. I reckon, I'm going to make a prediction here, James. It's going to be a wild prediction. I reckon they'll sell in the next, by the end of this year, actually, let's go that far. By the end of this year, I think they'll sell 10. Yeah, right. That's my prediction. <laughs> we'll check at the end of the year and we'll check with LG and see how many they've sold. I don't think there's a big market for them, but I think they love the fact that you and I are talking about LG in a very impressive way. The Bezoses and the Musks out there will go, well, I've got to have me one of those. That's right. <laughs> mm. Well, here's something for car enthusiasts, and this one is for the petrol heads out there. Hang on. This feels like a glitch in the Matrix, Matt. (laughs) Have you ever wanted to hear your car engine rev because you love the sound of it, of course, and and because um, you just need to hear it rev, but you don't want to sit in your car seat? You want to hear it rev, but from somewhere else. Probably not. But the clever little techies at Ford have come up with a tricky little tech gadget to get your car revving or from the comfort of your lounge room. Now, that's bound to never annoy your neighbours. <laughs> Matt, there's got to be a purpose behind this. And I'm going to confess, I am reaching. Something more than just keeping the poor, defenceless and victimised petrol companies in business, I guess. Yeah, I'm, I'm struggling as well, but I'll, I'll tell you my theory on it. But just to go back to the, the technicalities <laughs> but, of it. We, we, we've got a, yeah, so we've got a device that we can turn it on from a distance and rev the car engine. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So on the, on the 5th of May this year, there was a patent application that was published by the US Patent Office, and it said the technology would allow vehicle owners to rev their engines using an, in our quote, input device operated by the user and without having to push down on the accelerator. The vehicle's engine could be engaged at various distances from the vehicle, which means basically remotely. So the first thing I can see is you're at a car show, you're showing off your car at a show and shine or a a coffee and cars type event, and you say, hey, have you heard my loud V8 engine? And all the electric vehicle enthusiasts around there say, no, we haven't heard one of those for a while. Well, while we're sitting here having a coffee, let me show you my loud revving engine. And with his remote control, he starts revving the engine on his car. I'm not sure that that's enough of a reason to rush out and buy a Ford with this particular key fob. Now, keep in mind... This can, is- I guess the, can I guess the other one? Is it 
let's say you are a caped vigilante and you have a car that is sitting in a car park and some people are very interested in your car but you want to make it seem like there's someone actually in the car and being a caped vigilante you don't want to make a big scene you've got to be really discreet um you go in wearing black and you've got a cowl and all that sort of stuff so remotely you can turn your car on and rev it and that that will hopefully scare away the, the bad guys you stole my thunder that's exactly where oh, i was no. going oh, i'm so sorry <laughs> <laughs> so obviously that would have to have blackened windows on it as well to make sure that people couldn't be aware that there was no one actually sitting inside there. I'm so there. sorry, Matt. <laughs> so, now I am struggling as to why you might need it. That's about the best reason I've heard of so far. But I think, really, that some of the traditional car makers, Ford obviously being a very traditional long-term car maker going back to the Model T, then I think some of those are a bit annoyed that these young startup Silicon Valley type companies like the Teslas and the Polestars and the Rivians are coming along and stealing their thunder with these silly little EV vehicles. I think Mm. what they're trying to do is say, you know what, we can do technology as well. Look, look, we've got, oh, what have we got here? Oh, I know, we've got a key fob you can rev your engine with. And yeah, that's, we're going to flex our muscle here somehow. <laughs> yeah, it does seem a bit like that because I can't see any really good reason you would like it and use it except for that one time to say, hey, James, I've got a new car. Do you want to see what it does? And I show you how impressive it is with my key fob and you go, mm. yeah, Matt, you're a bit of a tosser there. Like, I just don't know that anyone would be that impressed by that, would they? Maybe someone would. Who knows? Maybe I'm being a bit harsh on people. But it's really just showing off the technology that's out there. And you can just think about it for a second. The technology they'd have to do to actually have this built into the car, you'd have to have some sort of actuator on the accelerator control. So there's a bit of Mm -hmm. technology that's built into that. You want to make sure that it doesn't work when it's in gear. So when you rev the car up to impress people you kind of don't want it running over little old ladies walking across the street at the same time so Mm. you'd want to build in some safety features some good technology in there so there's a bit in that for something that you probably would never see people use but you could show off that you've got technology in your cars as well it's some fantastic technology that um is really actually quite useless but um about to become obsolete as well you know well done guys yeah that's Pay right rise for you how do you how do you show them revving your electric vehicle that's a bit harder isn't it? <laughs> in an earlier story in this episode i ran a bunch of zones where you can pop on smart wearable devices well in the space of just a few short stories that list has just officially expanded to literally anywhere on your naked body. Folks, medical tech is about to explode if there is anything behind this little bulletin. Uh, The product is a compact wearable lab on the skin. Sounds very convenient, mate. How how versatile is it in its first incarnation? Well, it sounds convenient, but I'll just get my daughter to switch off now because she's not a big fan of needles. And part of this is not just a needle, but 24 needles. So if you, oh, right. if you can imagine something about the size in Australian terms of maybe... Hang, hang on a second. I think about a third at least of our audience has just passed out. <laughs> we'll just pause and let them come, come back. back. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. Right, okay. I think we're good. So maybe we should have given them a warning. Sit down before you listen to this story. <laughs> we're going to be talking about needles. That's right. So imagine something about the size of a 20-cent coin in, in Australian terms. And then on the underside of that, Put 
24 needles. That's 24. That's two, four. That's a lot of needles. But they're micro needles. They're needles that are about one-fifth the size of the thickness of a human hair. So they're very small. And basically, Mm. you just go and stick that on your arm maybe, your leg, somewhere on your skin that maybe you could live with 24 needles being stuck into. And then on the back of that is a little electronic device. And what this does is this measures different components of what's in your skin. So you get, at this stage, the first incarnation gives you indicators around glucose, alcohol, and lactate. And some obvious things there. Glucose is obviously you're talking about people with diabetes. They want to monitor their their, their levels of glucose. Uh, Alcohol, yep, sure. You can mix that in and say, well, I want to know whether I can drive home or not, so I see what level of alcohol I've got in my blood. Even if you've got diabetes, you might want to be monitoring your alcohol as well. And lactate Mm -hmm. is obviously about exercise, how much lactic acid is built up in your body or in your muscles, how's that level going. And again, that might relate back to diabetes. So the market obviously is for people with diabetes to be able to monitor that. And I've seen people with different devices. We've talked about different devices before, James, that you can put inside your body or outside your body and have hanging in your back pocket and you stick something underneath your skin and a whole range of things. This here is obviously designed to stick on the skin. The device itself, the, the needles themselves, that is replaceable. So you leave it on for a certain amount of time, you take that off. What sticks on the back of it, which is that same diameter, 20 cent coin, but a bit thicker, that's got the electronics in it. That's the thing that you keep constant. So you clip off a, a new set of needles and put them on again as such. And then you can mm. keep monitoring these things. But the great part about it is you're monitoring them real time, live, on your phone, you can see in your app exactly the levels mm. of those at any particular point in time. So if you were exercising, for example, and for whatever reason you needed lactate levels to be below a certain number, you would know that number now, not in five minutes' time, in ten minutes' time when I test. It's yeah, right wow. now. And they do this by putting enzymes on the tips of the needles and they react with glucose, alcohol, and lactate, obviously different needles for the different uh, things they're trying to, to generate or, or to pick up. And then from those reactions, they generate tiny electric currents, and that's where that electronic device picks up on those. So incredibly clever. It's, it's almost like having a little mini lab on your arm. So it's incredibly clever in terms of picking up that information and sending it through. And it's this whole thing that I've talked about before, wearables. That's the real explosion. That's the real market yeah. we're in. And how far do you go? Is it a wearable when it's sticking needles into your arm or is that something that's more <laughs> internal? Is it invasive? I'm not sure. I wouldn't really call it invasive, but it's a fine line between it being a wearable on the outside and just a little bit sticking yeah. into you. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, the, you have got the needles going into you, but the, when there's such small needles, yeah, you, you wonder you know, just how, where you draw the line on in what's regarded as invasive. But yeah. um, So yeah, it's, not, just, it's not actually going into the blood either. So it's not going all the way into your blood vessels. It's actually just sensing the biomolecules in the interstitial fluid. So supposedly from the tests they've done, the, the biochemical levels there, when they measure in that fluid, they correlate to levels in your blood. So it's mm. not... It's not saying just one little pin needle in the blood will give us all the information we need. It actually is using it something slightly different, but should still give you that same information. But I wonder how long before you know these devices are also measuring blood pressure and pulse rate and oxygen levels in the blood and, and all that sort of stuff, giving you the whole host of um, all the details that would give you little hints that something might go askew. Well, I, I've told you the story before that I remember talking to someone a decade ago telling me that you'd never be able to measure your heart rate just from a watch. You'd always have to have a chest band to, mm. to give you a heart rate to any device on your body. And of course, now we've got lots yeah. of devices that measure that. So you're right. Today, glucose, alcohol and lactate sounds pretty impressive. But 
what next? What are the other things we're going to measure? Yeah. And then yeah, and how far away from having this device we plug in and we just upload to our doctor once a month and say, give us an update on how things are going, doc. How, how am I looking? Yep, you're all good, Matthew. You've got a score of 92 this month. Yeah, and I was just thinking, well, currently it makes sense that um, the diabetics are wearing these uh, little labs on the skin. Um, but, um, you know, it wouldn't be so much to expect that, that maybe many of us would just be wearing it, uh, even those who aren't exhibiting any symptoms or have had any previous diagnoses at all. And the, the early detection um, would perhaps prevent um, longer-term issues. Um, yeah. So... Yeah. No, yeah. I've said it before, James, the unhealthier and more obese we become, the more we want to know how bad we are. Yes. And, and diabetes <laughs> is a good example. The number of people in the world with diabetes in 1980 was 108 million. We're now mm. at 537 million. So that's increased a lot. Obviously, the population of the world's increased in that time frame as well, but it hasn't increased by five times, which is what diabetes has done. And we had 6.7 million deaths last year from diabetes. So we didn't have that many deaths from COVID, but we put a whole lot of money and effort into stopping COVID spreading across the world. So diabetes is a big issue. Absolutely. If there's an organisation on earth that's all about big ideas with long-term plans, it's NASA. And the thing that they like about their long-term plans, well, the big thing there is that they've got their use-by dates as well. Perhaps that's one of the foibles that keeps the conspiracy theorists so excited. We're down to endemic Asperger's syndrome, but the mission comes to an end. They all seem a little bit emotionless. For example, the Cassini probe to Saturn was about 20 years in the planning, then another 20 years in flight, and then in September 2017, after they'd gotten all the photos they could possibly eat, they purposely crashed into Saturn with very few tears shed. Well, just like that, NASA's 747 Space Observatory is also set to close. And then yet another volume in the story of the world's most illustrious space agency, Matt. Yeah, I actually didn't know this thing existed. Did you ever heard of this particular plane with a, a little I observatory? I heard about it, and it's, it's not quite the same thing as, say, the Cassini probe, but nevertheless, it's fairly significant. So in, in getting up into the upper atmosphere, uh, not in the sorry, the very high atmosphere, but but getting you know I guess above the, into the stratosphere, um, so high altitudes for seven four sevens. It's able to get uh, about the, past the, the the thick atmosphere that can cause some uh, distortion to your images. Yeah. Now the Hubble telescope and the James Webb is going to be able to do heaps better, but they have a different purpose to what the 747 Space Observatory was all set up for. Well, and that's the thing. There are a few things that are a bit different about this, which I like. So I've followed the Hubble over the years, and obviously now, as you mentioned, the James Webb. The Hubble obviously gets out there in low Earth orbit, so it's at uh, three or 400 kilometres or thereabouts above the Earth. But as we know, and we talked about this story once before, where they put it up there and then it's there, and if you want to do something to it, do some repairs to it, well... Bad luck. You want to upgrade the technology? Yeah. Bad luck. So it's out there. Yeah. One huge advantage this particular 747 have was that you could actually do upgrades because it was landing and you could make changes to mm. it and do different things with it. But one of the things I find, found fascinating about it was when they first got this 747, it was originally built for Pan Am back in 1977. And so it flew for a while with them and then got sold to United Airlines. And then finally NASA got it in 1997. So it had done its job in terms of flying passengers around the world, as 747s tend to do. And they said, we want to put an infrared telescope 
in it. And everyone said, well, that's a great idea, but you've got this minor problem with the shell of the aircraft being in the way of the infrared signals that might come down. So how do you cut a hole in the <laughs> side of a 747 and then put it up? And this one actually flies a bit higher than most 747. Yeah, that's right. So you make it out of glass. Well, that started to distort the signal. So they actually yeah. got to the point where they made this incredibly complicated and a little bit dangerous, you might say, door that slides open once it gets to, normally it sits at about 43,000 feet. So they take off as per normal, it just flies up to those heights, and then they said, right, we're ready to observe, and a door slides across the back. And of course, when they're doing the testing, you can imagine the airflow flying along at the normal sort of speeds that 747 flies at, you get little tiny disturbances, that causes a problem, but you open a big door on the thing, so they had to redesign a cowling to just direct airflow over the opening so it didn't distort it enough. And they were still worried, even when they did that, the tail would just have so much pressure coming in that the, the complete tail would be ripped off. But anyway, they got it right, oh, obviously. Wow. We didn't hear about any crashes happening with it, so they got it right. Obviously, lots of wind tunnel testing to get it right. And then once they did that, they could start observing that whole infrared. So the official name for it was the SOFIA, the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. So SOFIA came up with a nice acronym. Well done. But they've been running it now for part of its lifetime. It had originally been designed for about a 20-year lifetime or usage, and it's gotten about nine years through that time frame, and they're retiring it basically through lack of funding. Because as you can imagine, it's a pretty expensive thing to run. It's not like mm. an observatory that sits on the ground and you might need some electricity to run it and you point it up in the sky. It takes a fair bit to throw a 747 up to 43,000 feet and run around up there for 10 or 12 hours and then come down and land and do it all again. It's been doing some fair bit of a observatory so i think they've been averaging around about 980 hours of observations per year so it's been used a bit but yeah that's pretty fun yeah it is but it's at the point now where unless they can get other funding they've basically said we're retiring it we've got lots of information that's fantastic we've got other telescopes that are observing as well so we just don't have the budget for it bad luck it might be a tactic to try and get Congress to say, no, we can't let this go. This is too fantastic. We'll give you some more money. But at this stage, it looks like they're probably just going to retire it and that'll be it. So there'll be a plane sitting somewhere that can have a nice big hole in the back open up out of it. And who knows, someone else might buy it and keep using it. Well, the other thing is with any sort of science research, they've got to just they've got to be able to rationalise the cost. So if they've already collected a whole bunch of data and no one's coming up with new ideas about uh, what's what sort of data we need to collect from this particular tool, then the tool's redundant. Um, and, and people talked about the moon missions and yeah, you know, why don't we go back to the moon? And um, well, that's often. You know, this conspiracy theorist say, why, did, why have we never been back to the moon? Well, we went back six times. Um, we actually tried seven times, but, um, you know, the, <laughs> the Apollo 13 didn't quite make it. But, um, you know, once, once you've collected the moon rocks that you need, once you've mapped what you need to map, once you've planted, um, you know, the retro reflector, and if you haven't got any other really, really good ideas then you're just blowing your money up in smoke. So, yeah, so perhaps this is one of those things where they they just don't have the need for it at this stage anymore. Um, it's done its duty. Have we been to the moon? Oh, yeah, no, apparently. Um, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's sit down and have a drink one night and uh, I'll tell you the story of it. <laughs> no, I think you're right, though. Once, once you've done that and you've actually gone through the process, maybe it's hard to justify the expense for what, data you're collecting but fascinating bit of technology on there and obviously they've gotten some good data over the years and uh, it's now being retired 
It's a cool story um, to add to their volumes. And the thing that will get me is that not a tear will be shed. It's just like, well, no, we had to resign and so, so, so be it. Are you getting solar panels on your roof? Well, that's so last decade. Everyone's getting portable solar now, Matt, and they're stashing a ton of power, apparently, which technically is the wrong unit of power. I actually acknowledge that right now, but the figure of speech served my purpose, okay? So portable solar power generators have been around for a while, but perhaps not with this sort of charging ability. This is for the serious campers out there. You, you want to be at one with nature, James, so yeah, go out mm-hmm. to the nature. I'll ignore how you got there for a moment. We'll just assume that you're getting there in some nice eco-friendly way but you get out there to nature and you say we're going to be at one with nature and then you tell the kids to go and gather the sticks and then start a fire up which is terrible for the environment it's all Mm. that dirty rubbish being put up into the environment and you cook your food and you do whatever you're doing there and then oh we need to watch a bit of tv or catch up on the footy score charge your mobile phone so you go to the generator and you you, get that going and okay now we've got the generator going (laughs) and so we're out here at one with nature isn't it beautiful while we listen to the generator in the background spewing some petrol fumes or diesel fumes out (laughs) and burning our fire and 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 grumbling away that's that's right (laughs) have i painted the picture is this the right picture here yeah we're there so the modern the modern eco-friendly person who wants to be at one with nature doesn't do that they drive their ev of course out to nature and then they can spend days weeks months out in nature but they just need some power they need some power for their vehicle they need some power for their various devices and i don't have a problem with that what i do have a problem with is how they might generate it but you can now get portable solar power that's actually quite impressive so combine solar power and batteries so for example and this is a fair weight it wouldn't be something i'd go trekking across the desert with to keep me powered up 68 kilograms so you know not something you just slap on your back and say let's go for a bit of a walk around the block but it gives you 1200 watts from the solar panels it's got a battery pack that can handle 2160 watt hours of storage there so what you do is while you're going out looking around your beautiful mountainous vista or doing some fishing in the river there you go along and lay your solar panels out get them pointing up somewhat towards the sky and charge up your battery so you can actually then come back at night time you've got a battery there that's big enough to you know maybe for example run a projector for 24 hours power electric barbecue for 100 minutes you can charge your laptop 16 times over so the battery that you've got there is big enough to basically keep you going in our modern connected world that we live in watch tv charge your phone do some things with your laptop connect to work whatever so now we've learned during this pandemic to work from home then who says home has to be home why can't home be this beautiful outside world that we've got out here. And you could do it with something like this because you've got all the power you need from the sun, you've got a battery to keep you going at night time, and away you go. Just be at one with nature, James. It sounds beautiful. Yeah, it just uh, well, it opens up a whole bunch of new possibilities there, doesn't it? It does, absolutely. And this is the thing, and again, I talk about it without camping, but there's no reason you couldn't do this in any situation. So you can imagine a building site. Someone's working away on a new building. They normally get builders power connected so they can run some of their power tools, but they're all battery operated now. So you could be at a building site, lay out some solar panels, have them charging up your battery ready to just charge up your cordless tools, and you've got everything you need to start working without needing to wait for a builder supply to be connected to wherever you're building. So there's so many different uses, I think, you could have for something like this 
anywhere you don't have some power, you don't have convenient access to power, having portable power is not too bad. And I actually didn't mind the price. I mean, it's an American price, about $6,000 US you'll pay for something like this. But that's not too bad to give you power pretty much anywhere that you can see a decent amount of sunlight. And with that battery pack, you're using that power as you need it 24 hours a day. Mm. And like a dram of fine single malt Scotch whiskey, that story nicely rounds off everything that preceded us. It preceded it, I should say. And we can call a close on another sterling episode of Tech Talk. Is that your latest? Cu- Sorry, is that your latest cure? Is it the whiskey for <laughs> cu- COVID? Is, is that the one? It's, it's the way that you can sterilise the inside of your body. Yes. <laughs> and now I'm off. I'm off to go and deck myself head to toe in smart wearables. How about you? Absolutely, I do love the idea of smart wearables. I want to have my body inside and outside connected with smart wearables there are so many things we can have in and outside i I just want a zipper somewhere i can just unzip put something in and then monitor everything on my body (laughs) thanks for tuning in again folks to tech talk with matthew dickerson i'm james eddie albeit albeit with a slightly sexier tone of voice it's been uh, a pleasure bringing you this episode and we hope we can catch you again in another week's time 